0: Matthew chapter 26 and verse 17. We read now on the first of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying to him, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Verse 18, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at a hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Verse 19, So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. And verse 20, when evening had come, he sat down with the twelve. Now, as they were eating, he said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Verse 22, and they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say to him, Lord, is it I? Lord, is it I? As we approach the Passover, it's, it's timely to to consider this passage, and therefore my title, is that I, Lord? If you can, put yourself in their shoes, in your mind's eye. These men had spent three and a half long years with Jesus. They'd, they'd walked with him, they'd talked with him, they'd learned from him, they'd been corrected by him, and they'd seen him do great and and marvelous, miraculous works. They trusted him. They they were dedicated to him. They believed in his cause. They believed that he was the Son of God. And yet he said, one of you shall betray me. Now make no mistake, they knew what he meant. You know, there was a price on his head, you might say. The the religious uh, authorities they hated him, they despised him, and they would jump at the chance to see him executed. In fact, not just executed, but, but humiliated. So they knew exactly what betrayal would mean for their teacher. So in Christ, their teacher, their master, their brother said, One of you will betray me. They were smitten. They were sorrowful, as it says. In fact, maybe slightly offended. Matthew chapter 26, again verse 22, they were exceedingly sorrowful, and each of them began to say, Is it I? One by one, we read in Mark actually, if you look at another reference to it, Mark chapter 14 and verse 19, it says, One by one, they said to him, Lord, is it I? Now we know the story, and we know who the betrayer was, the one who pulled the trigger, you might say, but in a sense, the answer to the question for all of them was yes. Matthew chapter 26 if you look just across the page in our Bibles and you read in verse 56 you see the last phrase in verse 56 is simply then all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now perhaps we might excuse the disciples. Peter we know tried to be bold. And the prophecy of Zechariah chapter, chapter 13 and verse 7 makes it clear that Christ knew that his, his disciples would react the way they did. He actually quotes Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 31 where he says, Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night for it is written, and then he quotes from Zechariah, he says, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. So, in a sense, in a sense, we might excuse them. Christ knew that his disciples would react the way they did, and and when we continue reading this story, we'd be quite incorrect to call these men cowards. Yet in in this episode, we we come face to face with ourselves because we're human. We're called by God. We have committed ourselves to God, just like. These disciples of Christ did. We've declared our allegiance. We've declared our, our loyalty. We've said the words, I accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and my Master and my soon coming King. Yet, yet I can safely say that you and I sit in the same place that the disciples did on that night. We can't claim to be superhuman. We can't claim to, to never be shaken to be to be beyond temptation uh, to be above reproach even as if we speak in a way like that one overly zealous disciple with an oversized confidence in himself we know as we read in Romans 3 for example that that all have sinned and come short we know that's us and we know we read in 1 John chapter 1 verse 8 we have no sin. If we say we have no sin, we're really on the wrong track because that's not where we stand. So in a way, Christ's words should ring in our ears just as they did on, the, on that fateful night for the disciples when he said, all of you shall be offended in me. And our prayer and our proper humble answer should be, is it I? Is it I? Will I betray you? So if we can put ourselves in the, in the place of the disciples, we'll recognize then that, that disloyalty and betrayal is, is, is not a, a shortcoming of someone newly called, but it's actually like us. It's actually a, a fault line. You might say a stress fracture, like it might be in an airplane, that over time... Over time, that stress fracture develops, and little by little, it appears, that's more of what, just like with the disciples, that's what applies to us, to you and me, who've built a bond with Jesus Christ, our brother. Betrayal is meaningless for strangers. You can't have betrayal among strangers. Betrayal comes with the assumption of a bond, of trust, of a conviction and a connection. Loyalty and trust are built brick by brick, day by day. So so here's the point. You and I have the potential for disloyalty and even the betrayal of Christ, a fact of, of God himself. And, and that really should be no less sobering to us today than it was when Christ's disciples heard similar words 2,000 years ago. So, we can consider ourselves forewarned because when we're forewarned, we're forearmed and we can avoid the traps that can bring our, our, our demise. And so, I'm going to give you some examples from the Bible that, that show how betrayal happens. Uh, we'll see the spark, we'll see the, the, the virus, the seed, the, what in, well, what engenders, you might say, disloyalty and it's then much more virulent strain, which is Betrayal. What engenders betrayal? Let's start with Matthew 26 here and let's investigate a little bit more what we're reading here in verse in verse 47. Because the first thing that engenders betrayal, we want to focus on for a few moments, is, is fear. And you might call it the fear family. The fear family is, is doubt, confusion, Uh, uncertainty because it's all, it all leads to and can be part of, of fear. So the fear family is what we're talking about first. And we see in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 47, we read again, we read verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas One of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and elders of the people. So we see there was a great multitude. There were a lot of people here. We don't know how many, it doesn't say, but they had weapons and they came to Christ. They came to his disciples here and they confronted him. And as we already read in verse 56... It was frightening enough that in verse 56 we read all the disciples forsook him and fled. Now, when we read this word forsook him, or as we read in the latter part of the verse 56 there, we're reading a word that's actually used for the disciples earlier on. Let's go back to the beginning of the story, Matthew chapter 4. Because this is the same word that was used in Matthew chapter 4, and verse verse 22 verse 20 let's begin the story in verse 18 and Jesus walking by the sea of Galilee saw two brothers Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen and then he said verse 19 follow me and I will make you fishers of men and verse 20 they immediately left their nets and followed him when it says they left their nets same word is used here so the beginning of the story, they left, this is what they left at, at, at the beginning, they left what they were doing to, to follow Christ. They were enthusiastic about it, they said, we're, go- we're following you, we're going to leave this behind, so they left what they were doing, they left their nets. In fact, if you go just flip further then into the story, we come to Matthew chapter 19, and, and they they enunciated this this fact of their relationship and their dedication to him, where they read, we read in Matthew chapter 19 and, and verse 27, when Jesus looks at him, verse 26, and said, with men this is impossible, I'm breaking into the thought here, but he said, with God all things are possible. Then, then the same word is used in verse 27, where Peter answered and said to him, see, we have left all and followed you, therefore, what shall we have? So, They've, they've left everything. But when we come to that faithful night, we go to Matthew chapter 26, what they left was Christ. With the same enthusiasm, you might say, on that night, as they had initially when they followed Him. But in this case, they left. They betrayed Him in that, in that moment, didn't they? Back to Matthew chapter 26 here. In verse 33, we see how Peter had the want to, didn't he? He he had the want to for sure. Verse 33, Peter answered after Christ said in verse 31 that you'll all be made to stumble because of me this night. Verse 32, or verse 33 rather, Peter answered and said to him, even if you all are made to stumble because of you, I will never be made to stumble. We can be very confident when we're feeling good, when we're feeling strong, when everything's going our way. When We feel like we're on, like we, we've, we've got it together. But he says, Jesus said to him, verse 34, Assuredly I say to you that this night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said, it cannot be. It can't be me. It, he didn't, in this case, it wasn't, is it I? Am I potentially vulnerable? It was like, no way, not me. Not this guy. So he says, "Even I have, I have to die with you. I will not deny you." And so said then all the apostles. It was, you know, it was a pep rally at that point. We're all with you, yeah, yeah. But that didn't last long. And, And not to criticize them, because we all, when we feel good, when we feel strong, when we feel healthy, when we feel like, whether it's our finances, again, our job, our relationships, when they're in a good place, we feel strong. But that does not necessarily mean that that feeling can take us through thick and thin. So, of course, we go across the page and we see in verse, or can just continue down, and we see verse 36. We're not even going to go very far. We're just going to go a couple verses here. In verse 36, we read, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Now Christ was in time of need. Now is when he needed some support. The pep rally is over in a sense, you know, and now he just needs somebody to stay awake with him and, and be there in his time, of, time of, 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 of sorrow because he knew what he was facing And what happens? He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed, and he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. I don't know what words could be more expressive of how he felt and how much he needed that, that companionship and encouragement. Could you think? Me to us, we just read the words. But I don't know what, how, how much more deeply that could be expressed. And what do we see here? Verse 38 or verse 39. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed. And we read about that. And he came to his disciples, verse 40, and he came to them and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? So all the, the want to in terms of being there and being a help, it evaporated very quickly. Now that, that's a, that's an object lesson for us, isn't it? Because As I said, we can be, we can have the want to, but that feeling doesn't always take us through all the trials as, as we go forward. Peter wanted to. Matthew chapter 26 verse 51. We read again, Peter, suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So we know this was Peter, and Christ said, okay, That his moment of boldness. There was a flash of boldness where he was living up to that dedication. We have that sometimes too, don't we? We 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 have these we have these moments where we are yeah, we're with it. We have these flashes. How long did it take for that flash to evaporate? A moment of confusion? Where Christ said, No, this is not the way we're going. You're off track. And Peter said, What? I I'm I'm being bold for you. And he said, No, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray my Father, and he will provide me with more than twelve legions of angels? How could then the Scriptures be fulfilled that must happen thus? And in that hour Jesus said to the multitude, Have you come out, etc.? Verse 56, But all this was done, that the Scripture might, of, the, of the prophets might be fulfilled. And that's when we see, in that moment of confusion, we see fear take place, and they run. When we don't know what's going on, we can't see the light at the end of the tunnel. We don't understand what God has in mind. We don't understand what we're supposed to do. That's when doubt, confusion, fear take place and we turn our backs on God. We can, at least we're vulnerable. When things become confusing, confusing, confusing and we're in confusion, then the stage is set for disloyalty and and betrayal. But, you know, Christ is merciful, isn't he? And and he bolsters our faith. He He can squelch our fear as he did with his disciples. And we have it to read because we can turn across to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. And look what Christ did. Look how merciful and kind Christ is. Because in John chapter 20, after Christ's resurrection, we see verse 19. The same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and they were glad when they saw the Lord. Do you think that maybe they just, they wondered, does he remember that night? Does he remember that we ran away? But yet they knew his mercy and and they appreciated it and and they were glad. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit, Verse 23, and then it goes on from there. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. I want to go to verse 24. Verse 24 then. Because we find even Thomas, even Thomas, who doubted, and we read, we read about that. Verse 24, now Thomas called the twin, one of the twelve was not with them when Jesus came, and the other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails, and put my finger into the print of the nails, and put my hand at his side, I will not believe. I'm not changing my course. What was happening? What was the? What was engendering this this mindset? As I said, fear and its family, doubt, confusion, a lack of surety about what's happening, where to go, what's going on. And so we see verse verse uh, 26. Verse 26, after eight days, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came, verse 26, Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. And then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Verse 28, And Thomas answered and said to him, What more profound thing could be said? He said, verse 27, he said to him, God, rather verse 28, my Lord and my God. Wow. What, what a moment. What a moment when, yes, when there was fear and there was betrayal, but because of Christ's mercy, his disciples were willing to, were able to be joined back together with him in harmony and literally thomas said you are who you are my lord my god so fear engenders betrayal and we can be thankful that god is merciful and that that christ is willing to see us through our moments of weakness he's willing not just weakness but actually where we turn our back and run away He's willing and able to see us through and strengthen us and show himself to us, bring us back to reality as he did with his disciples. The second point or second key to betrayal that I want to talk about then for a moment, and that is, that's selfishness or second, uh, second element that engenders betrayal. That's selfishness. Now, if you look in the Bible or think in the Bible about Examples of selfishness, you can certainly find many, because selfishness reveals itself through covetousness, through lust, through desire, doesn't it? And we see in 2 Samuel chapter 11, it's unfortunate that David was so prominent in the Bible for him, because a lot is recorded about him, and personal details of his life, I think none of which I think we would like to have in our own lives, all the personal details of our Flaws and faults and mistakes and missteps, but David is, a, is an example for us. So, not to pick on David, but because his life was was punctuated with betrayal, it's a good example of the point. And his, his life really was turned into a tragedy in, in so many ways because of betrayal. His life shows how, how betrayal begets distrust it begets bitterness and more betrayal. We begin in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and we read, well, let's start reading a little bit of the story here in verse, in verse 1. It happened in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof Of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful to behold. David sent and inquired about the woman. Someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So we see some of the names involved. These are real people. These are, you know, these were not just, this isn't just a a fable, but these are real people whose lives were turned upside down by David's selfishness. Leading to betrayal of a paramount in a paramount manner. So we see verse verse four, then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him and he lay with her, for she was clean cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And David sent to Joab, saying, Okay, here's what we're gonna do about it. And he tried to pretend like he had nothing to do and was tried to bring Uriah the Hittite, who was one of the mighty men, someone who was a powerful warrior, a leader, and he said, let me bring him back, and let's just pretend that it's his child by bringing him back and having him have relations with his wife. Uriah was too noble of a man to actually betray, in his mind, his fellows back in the heat of the battle, No, he was too noble for that. I mean, the integrity of this man was such that he would not even take pleasure, a normal pleasure of his, with his wife and his home because of his, his compatriots. It it creates quite a contrast, doesn't it, with what was happening on the other side of the coin. We see here, ultimately, since, because of Uriah's integrity here, you might say, that David then had to take a different tack to betray one of his chief captains. And we read about it in verse 14. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. The irony is almost too much, isn't it? The man's death sentence was in his hand. And it wasn't just a death sentence, but it was actually a betrayal sentence that not only did David betray him, but he commanded his men, to betray him as well. And this is how the story goes. He wrote in a letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. Betray this man. Leave him. I command you and your men to leave him in the heat of the battle and betray this man. So we see he did it. While Joab besieged the city, he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there were valiant men. And then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite died also. His plan worked. His plan worked. You know, think about what it must have been to be, what it would have been like to be Uriah. Where there he is, and I just, I can only in my mind's eye wonder if it dawned on him what was happening. That his, his men, his team were actually pulling back. Well, some other also died with him, but something was going on here. And here he was, all alone, standing, fighting, while those who were supposed to have his back disappeared. And like vapor, they were gone. What must it have been like in that, in that moment? Selfishness, it, it leads to, in this case, we see betrayal. And I'm using the other examples because when we think of ourselves and only how we'll, we, we will feel and not the other person that we may be following or with or bonded to in a relationship or what have you, when we only think of ourselves... Sometimes it means that we turn our back on what's, what's best or what's right for the other person, for the other individual. In this case, for Uriah, it didn't just leave deep scars because betrayal leaves scars in relationships. In this case, it left him dead. This was the low point of David's life, at least up to that point, because betrayal followed him like a plague from that point forward, and, and that brings us to another another seed that engenders betrayal, and that is bitterness, bitterness, bitterness. And we have a, a number of examples to which we could turn of bitterness uh, in the Bible. The one that comes to mind for me first is is Joseph. Um, Joseph's brothers. And the the act of betrayal that they did, selling him into slavery, that's a pretty good one in terms of acts of betrayal. I think that qualifies, right? How did that happen? It didn't happen out of air. It happened out of of nowhere. It happened because of bitterness that had accumulated over the years, hadn't it? And, And you can look at the different examples, whether it's the favoritism that was shown or the fact that you know Joseph was having dreams that they were bowing down to him, these little things that between brothers and sisters don't really go over very well. But for whatever, you can add up all the reasons, but it resulted in ultimately in, in the bitterness that uh, ultimately led to betrayal of Joseph's brothers toward Joseph. but But I mentioned the seed in relation to David, so let's let's follow up on that one. Second Samuel chapter 13. Now we're in chapter 11, and we, we read more of what happened in chapter 12. But in chapter 13, the story of David, David's life goes on. We see in chapter 13, the gist of the story is that Absalom, who was the son of David, had a lovely sister whose name was Tamar, and his half-brother Amnon raped her. That's that's really what the story is about. Very sad and and, and very uh, very violent and and cruel and a, a horrible story. Okay, so we this is what we read about here in chapter 13. We come to verse 19. Then Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her robe of many colors that was on her and laid her hand on her head and went away crying bitterly. And Absalom her brother said to her, "Has Amnon your brother been with you?" But now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this thing to heart. So Tamar remained desolate in her brother's, Ab, brother Absalom's house. So he took care of her. He took care of her, and he, he after this episode, he, he protected her. But look what happened here in verse 22, or verse 21. When David heard of all these things, he was very angry. You see, the problem was he shouldn't have just been angry, but he should have actually carried out the death penalty on Amnon because that was the law. That, that was the law. But because he didn't, because he didn't, we find the saga of betrayal and strife continues because this is what caused bitterness to blossom in Absalom. His father did not carry out a course of action of any sort of punishment in fact, it should have been the capital punishment. He'd carried none of that out and instead just was angry. And that's the extent of it. So we see verse 22, And Absalom spoke to his brother Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had forced his sister Tamar. And verse 23 down through verse 33 is the story of how he ultimately he murdered him. He killed him. Now, doesn't excuse him for doing that. But the death penalty, I repeat, should have been carried out by David, his, his father. Now, if we go to 2 Samuel chapter 15, we see that the bitterness that blossomed in Absalom almost tore the nation apart. Because we read there, ultimately, it came to virtually civil war. 2 Samuel chapter 15, we read that the, the bitterness... That was in Absalom, continued to engender betrayal of his father, the king. Verse 1, after this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision... That Absalom would call to him and say, what city are you from? And he would say, your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. And Absalom would say to him, look, your case is good and right, but there's no deputy of the king to hear you. And then the famous words. He said, verse 4, oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And he says, verse 5, So it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. And this matter Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. And so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The bitterness that he had towards his father engendered ultimately a strife, as I said, that led to this warfare that racked the country. But that bitterness and betrayal did not only affect Absalom. Verse, verse 31. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, verse thirty-one, 31, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. So we see that Ahithophel is among the counselors for his son Absalom. Now you know about Ahithophel because... Probably it appears that Ahithophel is talked about when we sing about him every once in a while. If you, if your your hymnal, I'll uh, I'll just point out the page. It's page 37 at least in this version, and it starts out, "Twas not a foe who did deride, for that I could endure. No hater thus who rose in pride, else would I hide secure." Psalm 55. Most Bible commentators will uh, conjecture at least applies to Ahithophel, that trusted advisor of, of, of David, who betrayed him as a result of all the machinations. But thou it was, my friend and guide, we did as equals meet. We walked to God's house side by side and counsel blended sweet. We sing this song and we sing about betrayal. Probably Ahithophel's. Betrayal, and we we feel the sense of what it means to be stabbed in the back, the the, the betrayal that comes unexpectedly. In this case, of a, of Ahithophel. In this case, though, there's more to the story, because not only was Ahithophel brought into Absalom's orbit, perhaps by flattery. We see this is what he used in other places. But if you go to 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 34, you read that Ahithophel was the father of Eliam. Now, we already read about Eliam a few minutes ago. You remember when we read about Eliam? We read about Eliam when we read about Bathsheba. Because Eliam was Bathsheba's father. So Bathsheba was the granddaughter, likely, if the names match up. Bathsheba was the granddaughter of Ahithophel. This man who was an advisor of of King David, but in another instance apparently some conjecture that he'd been looked over in a a chief judge role, but yet was still a counselor and a, a friend to David. But yet meanwhile, behind the scenes, there was this bitterness that was stirring. ultimately, when the bitterness of Absalom blossomed, then Ahithophel Join in, and the bitterness that was working ended in betrayal, from Absalom to David. David's betrayal—we talked about—and Ahithophel—it was, it was a, a sad saga of, of, of bitterness and betrayal that ultimately ended in Ahithophel's suicide. You read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 17 and verse, and verse 23. Ahithophel saw that his advice was not followed, and he saddled a donkey and he arose and went home to his house to his city. Then he put his household in order and hanged himself and died, and he was buried in his father's tomb. That suicide, some say it was the first that's recorded in the Bible, but also some will say that Ahithophel is a type of somebody else who brings us full circle. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26. Remember that ultimate type of betrayal, Judas Iscariot? Well, perhaps he was the antitype. Because if David, in that sense, would would symbolize Christ, and Hithophel would be one who would betray him, Matthew chapter 26, we do see this, this parallel, because we understand that there ultimately was a betrayal of Judas Iscariot that was also built on bitterness. It appears, maybe you could say selfishness, the first point, possibly. But but we do see a point of bitterness here, and I'll, I'll show you what I mean. Matthew chapter 26 and verse uh, 6. When Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil, and she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? Now notice the disciples, right? It, was, it wasn't just one. It said the disciples. In fact, I think it's in Mark you read um, that, that it actually mentions it again and emphasizes it. But anyway, we read verse 9. It says, For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Uh, Verse 13, assuredly, I, I say to you, verse 13, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be also told as a memorial to her. Well, apparently, if we go over to John, Judas was most outspoken about this. John chapter 12. And he got a rebuke out of it. John chapter 12. John chapter 12 and uh, begin reading in verse in verse uh, 2. We read the same uh this, of the same time uh, Mary took a pound of very costly oil. Uh let's go to verse 4. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. So as I say, selfishness could apply. It's overlapping. But, But look what happens next. Look what happens next. Verse 7, Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you do not have always. So it appears that his comment was pointed directly, at least in this case, and some of the commentaries will say, that this was painted directly, specifically to Judas especially, because he was the one whose name is attached, who spoke up, who was then criticized or rebuked even as... you may even have it in some of your margins. Sometimes that phrase is used of Judas, basically rebuked him. And by the way, it reminds me. If you uh, want to look at that episode, Mr. Davy Crockett wrote. It's in three years ago, I believe. It's in. It's a commentary about the betrayal of Judas and talks about this a bit. And you can look it up. It's in 2018, and it's um, it's worthwhile to expand this a little bit. But. Back to the story. You see, because remember, Christ, Judas was not the only one that Christ ever rebuked. You remember a very powerful rebuke of who? Peter, right? And yet, in this case, we see that very quickly from this point, the rebuke stung and humiliated Judas and allowed Satan to provoke him. Luke chapter 22. I know there was there's more to the story. I understand, but it certainly follows right on the heels of this episode. So perhaps it, it it added emphasis or it it provoked him. Luke chapter 22, and we read verse verse three. We read verse three. Then Satan entered Judas, surnamed Iscariot, who was numbered among the twelve, and he went his way and conferred with the Chief priests and captains, how he might betray him, and they were they were glad and agreed to give him money. And he promised and sought opportunity then to betray him to them in the absence of the multitude. So we see a an example of how how bitterness can lead, and whether it's through um, the, the story of David or uh, or, or Judas. We see a little bit of a, of a stinging smart there. Bitterness can also lead to betrayal. So, how do we take this rather heavy understanding and how do we apply it to ourselves? I mean, we don't, it's not, doesn't feel very good to think of ourselves as disloyal or one who might betray. But if we're honest, we, we should recognize, at least through, I've gone through this, to this point, recognize we have the potential And maybe you might say, in fact, I know, I know someone who I feel has been disloyal or betrayed over whether personally or, or, or perhaps even in terms of the church. And, and so it's, it's very, it's a very real present danger. And if we deny that it could be part of us, could happen to us, we're simply foolish. So how do we take this, this understanding and apply it to ourselves? And I want to just then focus on three Three keys briefly, and that is number one, how do we, how do we avoid it? Let's just talk for a moment briefly about avoiding it in the first place. James chapter one. I think simply recognizing that it does happen and and how it happens is important. James chapter one, you know, the Bible is, is full of admonitions to help us to in, to be prepared and to be armed to, to fight temptation, to recognize the signs of temptation, the signs of, of wrongful desires, to recognize our selfishness, to think about ourselves, to analyze ourselves honestly, to look at the mirror of God's law and God's word. So that arms us, frankly, Right there, the fact that we have a standard that is absolute is, is helpful as a starting point because if we have that, then we'll recognize our vulnerabilities. James chapter 1 and verse 12, for example, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. If we recognize the power of our of desire, selfishness, and uh, desire to be seen as important, desire to have what we don't have. If we recognize the power of of desire, and how it is actually an extension of our our selfishness, knowing that selfishness can produce a betrayal because we turn our back on others, we turn our back on God if we're if we act selfishly. So if we understand the power of of, of, of desire. Verse 15, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death, death. If we understand that, we're, we're armed. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. If you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. So, again, it reiterates how we treat our fellow brethren, not selfishly, but thinking of others, thinking outwardly, recognizing that we, can, that we can fall prey to our own envy, our own self-seeking. Verse 16, for where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing is there. Now the, the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield. All this verbiage is about, about other people, avoiding selfishness, but actually being outward in our concern for others. So, we can avoid betrayal, or turning our back on others, or, or being disloyal to others, if we learn to actually be unselfish. It's, it's a, a stepping stone to actually not being disloyal to others and not being disloyal to God. Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. In our own minds, we always see our motives. We always see the way we are in the best possible light. That's just that's just the way we think. But if we can, if we can develop, if we can develop the, the sense of outgoing concern for others, and that's on our mind, it helps us to actually avoid the time to come when we are, we actually turn our backs on others because our whole effort is to have our, our, our desire to be helping others, our concern outgoing. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he says, verse 9, And I, this is, I think, in a sense of, the, of confusion. If we want to avoid betrayal, avoid confusion, okay, as well as avoiding uh, selfishness. In this case, he says, don't be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it's good that the heart be established by grace, not with food, not, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them and of course more is discussed about that in the book. The point for that I brought this scripture out is is that confusion which I talked about a little bit in terms of fear if we if we can be able to have a solid understanding and continue solidly following Christ and what he lays out for us and avoid confusion we we avoid bitterness. And I hope that connection becomes clear, because when we get caught up in wrong doctrines, when we get caught up in heresies, it's likely that bitterness will follow. And if you, if you think about it and think about your experience, even those of you who have been around the church for many years, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Bitterness is a fruit of confusion, in particular, even terms of doctrines. So, how do we avoid betrayal? I've just given you just a, a the tip of the iceberg here, but think of, of others. Don't be selfish. Learn how to develop love for others. Be solid in our understanding of scriptures. Don't be caught up with this or that heresy, really. That's what they are. And we, we help to avoid bitterness. Okay, second... Little key in terms of, of applying what we've talked about so far. How do we fix it? How do we fix it? First is talking about avoidant. Now, how do we fix it? Well, one way is we read about Judas and that's uh, suicide. Okay. I'm not suggesting we do that at all. What I'm saying is the guilt overcame him in this case, didn't it? Matthew chapter 27 and verse 3. I mean, this is how Judas dealt with his betrayal and really it epitomizes how how powerful betrayal when we recognize that we have betrayed when we have been disloyal it epitomizes the the force that it acts on us it it's a heavy heavy weight in this case we see the heaviest weight that could be born in Matthew chapter 27 we read this explanation of what happened to, to Judas in verses three through, through, uh, through 10. Let's go back to second Samuel chapter 16 though because I want to go back to the story of David for a moment and see how he applied his understanding and applied a godly principle. Second uh, Samuel 16. So if you go back over the previous pages and you read the story, you read how in chapter, in chapter 12, the latter part of chapter 12, we see how he went before God and, and he asked for forgiveness and he threw himself on God's mercy. And, and I want to come a little bit more down the storyline here because in chapter 16 we see the result of, of what David did. He deeply repented. How do we fix betrayal? We deeply repent. When we turn our back on God. And brethren, the reality is, look, every time that we embrace a a wrong thought, I'm not just saying have it pass through our mind, but every time we entertain and we let fester covetousness or envy or pride and vanity or lust, Desire, inordinate desire. Every time that we entertain those thoughts, and certainly when we act upon them, we are betraying God, aren't we? We're betraying Jesus Christ because we have told him that we would obey him, that we would follow him, and we will be faithful to him. And what we are doing, truly, is we are turning our back on him for that moment. We've seen he's merciful, but that is an act of betrayal. Betrayal. And if allowed to fester and continue, it results in completely turning our back and walking away from God, doesn't it? So that's why, that's how important it is that we, that we consider our actions and our thoughts on a daily basis because if we say, oh, they're just, they're meaningless and they are not, you know, many acts of betrayal, seeds of betrayal, we're kidding ourselves. But we see in the case of David, he threw himself on God's mercy, and as a result, he changed. And we see it, I think, so clearly in chapter 16 here of Second Samuel. We see that when David came, verse 5, came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah, coming from there. He came out, cursing continuously as he came. Here, here, here David is now on the run. You know? His son, who betrayed him, is out to get him, to kill him. He's at a low point here of, of his life. Another low point of his life. And we see his attitude here. Verse 6. He came out cursing continuously as he came, verse 5 and verse 6, and he threw stones at David and at all the servants of King King David, and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. You have to think, Shimei, he is not a smart character here, okay? Here are David's mighty men are all around him, and here's Shimei throwing stones at him. You think, not the wisest move. But yet, look at David's attitude, which is reflected through this. Verse 7, we'll continue. Shimei said thus when he cursed, come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. I love that word, rogue. It's a great word for, just, I don't know, it has a sound to it, rogue. So I'll say it again, rogue, you know, rogue. It's like, okay. So verse 8, Then the Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, and whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hands of Absalom your son. So now you are caught in your own evil, because you are a bloodthirsty man. Verse 9, Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me, you know, he had to ask please. He said, but please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? This was a different man. This was a man who who said, you know what? I, I deserve this. I'm actually, he's right. I've been bloodthirsty. I've been selfish. He's right. That's a completely different attitude. A different David. When you go back and you read about the disciples, Acts chapter 5, after their moment of weakness, after their moment of disloyalty, of betrayal to Christ, Acts chapter 2 and then Acts chapter 5, we read of different men. Acts chapter 2, Peter stood up. And he said to the assembled crowd, You have killed the Son of God. And these were individuals who likely were participating, literally, in the killing of the Son of God. And he told it to that to their face. Acts chapter 5, we see with that same courage and changing the way he was. How do we fix it? Well, we are repentant. We acknowledge our weakness. And we we build strength, and not on ourselves, not on our own strength, but we ask God to fill us with the strength that we need through repentance and change. That's how we overcome any of the seeds of betrayal, bitterness, selfishness that can grow in us, is by changing what we are. And and this is what we see here. Acts chapter 5, you see in the first part of the chapter how... Uh, they were thrown in prison because of their uh, of their their speaking and their preaching and uh, you can see this in the first part of the chapter and then verse twenty seven you see that they 're brought before the, the the officers and the magistrates. The captain went in after they had been freed here this this amazing uh, miracle. And you see verse 26. The captain went in with the officers and brought them without violence. For they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in, his, in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. And uh, remember, these were men who fled. This was a man who denied Christ three times. And look what they said here. Verse 29. But Peter and the other apostles answered and they said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. These were different men. But it didn't happen through their own strength. We saw what happened when they relied on their own strength. It was a pep rally. We're behind you, you know. It was an act of boldness with a little bit of confusion that led to running away. This was different. We can be like this if we rely on God and ask God to strengthen us. Not to be filled with guilt and not to be filled with fear and not to be filled with bitterness when we fall down, when we make mistakes, but instead be determined to obey God rather than man and, and, to, and to have our allegiance and our loyalty be sure to him through thick and through thin, through, through, through thin. One other application point I want to speak to just for a moment then of three application points here, or application issues, and that is this. How do we deal with it when when others betray us? How do we deal with it when others betray us? Because this is part of the betrayal picture as well, isn't it? It's part of the picture as well. And if we're human, if we're alive, if we're breathing, someone's going to betray us. Someone's going to be disloyal, somebody's going to turn their back, somebody's going to hurt our feelings. It's life. There's a beautiful song, probably heard it, Blessings by Laura Story, and and she sings about about how sometimes friends betray us. But then the theme of the song is sometimes these trials, including betrayal, is a blessing in disguise. Because it it, it tempers us, doesn't it? It helps it matures us. Because if we were only everybody's favorites, you know, and we were only given accolades all the time, how strong would we really be? How mature would we really be? Matthew chapter 18, isn't this what Christ was, was teaching about here in Matthew chapter 18? Matthew chapter 18. Moreover, verse fifteen: If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. He sins against you. Actually, I mean, this is this isn't. We, sometimes we 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 change the word to when you're offended by somebody else, go talk with them. Well, that is true, but that's not what this says. This is this says when they sin against you, betray you, hurt you, do something harmful to you, something that's a sin. Yeah, the principle applies to being offended, but that's not what it says. But when, when this happens, what do you do? You try to reconcile, rebuild the relationship. That's why you go to him or her. And ultimately, we we find that the the heart of the matter starts in verse 21, doesn't it? Because then Peter came to him and said, Well, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Is that enough? Because that's a lot. That's a lot. Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. That's a lot. And this was Christ's attitude towards his disciples, wasn't it? You know, the Bible gives us sobering accounts of betrayal, but it also reveals profound loyalty. One of my favorite stories of loyalty in the Bible is that of, of Jonathan with his father Saul and with his friend David. The story of Saul, it's such a sad story, and it's a story of potential unfulfilled. Saul was a natural leader, but his life is an object lesson in unfaithfulness and betrayal, isn't it? If anyone could be excused for not supporting him, it would have to be his son Jonathan. When you read 1 Samuel chapter 14, you you read how interspersed between Saul's disloyalty and foolishness and just plain craziness sometimes, you find examples of Jonathan's loyalty where he supports his father, where he supports David. Ultimately, Saul throws a spear at him for his loyalty to David, and yet he still supports his father to the point where ultimately... He dies in battle, defending, supporting, following his his father. A powerful example of of loyalty. He died in loyalty to his father and to his fellow soldiers and and to David because his loyalty never flagged to David all the years, even though it meant his rightful place as heir was replaced by, by David. His loyalty is unquestioned to the end of his his last breath. There's another story we should remember in the New Testament. Let's go to Matthew chapter 4. And that is the story of the loyalty of Christ. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 1, we read, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. And when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, what was, what was Satan challenging Christ on? His loyalty, right? If any one of these challenges, if Christ would have succumbed to Satan, by the way, who showed betrayal long ago, didn't he? He showed betrayal long before this. You might say he's the chief betrayer. But at any point, if if Christ would have accepted or acquiesced to Satan's advances, what would he have been doing? He would have been betraying his father, wouldn't he? Isn't that what it's about? this, This account here is about his loyalty to God his father. And he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It's written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to to tease or provoke my father. I'm not going to manipulate my father to protect me as he has promised No. What would that be? Well that's, that's, I would say that's a betrayal of true trust, to have to test it. You know, when you, when you test the trust of, of a friend by provoking them to do things that are, that are unwise or, as, as this scenario is, is that, what does that show? That shows a breakdown in the relationship, doesn't it? And it goes on from there. It says, verse eight, again, the devil took him up, verse eight, and exceeding the high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you, give you, if you will fall down and worship me. And again, his loyalty was to God, and he was not going to put himself under the thumb of Satan the devil. He did not betray his father, and he did not betray us, did he? Because by his actions, by his last actions, as a physical being on this earth, he went through, in Matthew chapter 26 we read about this, he went through what was only, can only be considered one of the most agonizing things to do, knowing what you're facing. Matthew chapter 26 verse 36, we already read about this. And we we read about we read read about his prayer and his agony. Verse uh, verse uh, verse thirty seven, and we read verse thirty nine. He prayed, "My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will." And so, we see in his this situation through his prayer through his agony, we see. We asked, did he fear what was about to come? He certainly did, but he was still faithful, wasn't he? He did not allow that fear to allow him to betray us. Could he have avoided the whole thing and just thought of himself and his own safety selfishly? Yes, but he did not. Could he have become bitter, frankly, knowing that his disciples would forsake him? He knew that. He was forsaken by everyone. And did that cause him to become bitter and say, "What am I doing this for? I know my disciples are going to forsake me; one already has." But no, no. Matthew chapter 24. Let's see if we can head down the home stretch here. Let's let's think then, as as I close, about say an action step. What it, what is it that we that we do? What do we need to focus on with? this in mind and the concern about being faithful and not betraying. Well, we have a warning that it should be important to us because in Matthew 24, we have a heads up that this is a pertinent, this is a present danger for us. We read Matthew 24, the Olivet prophecy. We read about things that are to happen. We read certain time stamps here. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many will, false prophets will rise up and deceive many. So we read these, these time stamps of things happening, and certainly we can say that there's, there, the closer you get to verse 13 and 14, the more of a present danger they'd be for us, right? Because we see it ultimately, he who endures to the end shall be saved, in verse 13. We're talking about these are issues particularly at the end, although they will be obviously present dangers throughout time. And as I read over quickly in verse 10, what does it say? It says, many will be offended and will betray one another and will hate one another. We read of the importance of, brethren to not be not fall into hatred to continue to love one another to care for one another not let our love grow cold we read in all the messages of the churches one after the other you read of faithfulness revelation chapter 2 and 3 read through each of the areas of the church and see how faithfulness is a resounding repetitive theme the opposite of betrayal isn't it and, 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 we're warned to not betray and not be, not be taken off track by betrayal. This time in our nation, and potentially going forward, we don't know what the future will yield as far as what happens in terms of God's church, how we'll be limited by our ability to move around by our economic situation by communication uh, challenges we don't know political challenges that will affect us and we need to do everything we can to maintain the 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 bulwark of faith in god and humility to care for one another and not allow ourselves to be torn apart not allow ourselves to have seeds of disloyalty towards each other. Do you trust me? Do you trust my motives? Do I trust your motives? So when you step on my toe, I don't say, yep, that's you. You always wanted to step on my toe and now you got a chance. You know? Or do I say, I'm sure that was an accident. Or do you say, I'm sure that was an accident? If we say an unkind word to each other, if we slip, if we Unfortunately, actually say something that's incorrect or untoward or, or not appropriate. Do we give each other the benefit of the doubt? We're not in a time where people give each other the benefit of the doubt. Are we willing to actually absorb for each other, love one another enough that we that we're able to, we're willing to extend trust to one another? And it's hard when that trust is broken. It's hard when that trust is is stepped on. But we should not become numb and say, well, I'm not going to trust anybody else. Through God's love, through God's forgiveness, through through following Christ's example, we need to be able to develop trust for one another, where we're willing to actually extend that. If If we don't, what happens is we... We go into little cocoons where we say it's just me and God. I'm going to obey God, but we're all in our own little world. And that's not what God's church is about. We're going to have to be able to develop a trust where you know that I would lay my life down for you. And I know that, that the same would be true. I know that you'd be willing to do anything for me, and I would do anything for you. We need to have that that, that confidence and trust in one another, because it may come to the point where we'll need that from each other. We're we don't live in that world yet, but we may at some at some time. Many years ago, Moses gave some words of encouragement to to Israel, Deuteronomy chapter thirty one. Deuteronomy chapter 31, and verse 1, Moses went and spoke these words to all Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today, I can no longer go out and come in. Also the Lord has said to me, you shall not cross over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself crosses over before you. He will destroy these nations before from before you, and you shall dispossess them. Joshua himself crosses over before you, just as the Lord has said. And look what he said, verse Verse 4 then, he said, And the Lord will do to them as he said did to Sihon and Og, the uh, verse uh, verse 4, the the kings of the Amorites and their land, when he destroyed them. He says, verse 5, The Lord will give them over to you that you may do to them according to every commandment which I have commanded you. But he says, verse 6, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. So God promises that he will not forsake us. He will not betray us. Will we return the favor? Will we return that same dedication? We find Moses turned around and repeated this to Joshua. Because he said, verse 7, Then Moses called Joshua. He had been speaking to Israel. Now he said to Joshua, to reiterate the importance of this emphasis, he said, Verse, verse seven, he called Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, "Be strong and of good courage, for you must go with this people to the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall cause them to inherit it." And verse eight, and the Lord, He is the one who goes before you, He will be with you, He will not leave you, nor forsake you. Do not fear, nor be dismayed. Don't be confused. don't fear don't be consumed with your, your yourselves and don't be selfish I'm adding to it and don't ever let bitterness creep in instead have courage rely on me I will be loyal to you be loyal and faithful to me that's a powerful a, a power, some powerful words of encouragement and if we can only take those words and just Plant them deeply inside with God's Spirit, asking God to give us that loyalty that we need to Him and to our brethren. To the work, we will go on on into the millennium, just as the children of Israel were promised to go into the land of promise, and we'll be able to be part of that that age, uh, a remarkable time when we're on the cusp of. A time like the this world has never known, but our part in it will depend on our willingness and our dedication, dedication to remain loyal to God, to never, ever betray.